The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're talking about venom, the creatures that have it, how it harms us, and how medical research is finding new ways it can help us. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Christy Wilcox, a biologist and science writer. She has blogged about science since 2008 and currently pens Science Sushi for Discover Magazine. She was one of the editors of the book Science Blogging, The Essential Guide, and is the author of the new book, Venomous, How Earth's Deadliest Creatures Mastered Biochemistry. Christy, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. Okay, so how long have you been fascinated by venomous creatures? Oh, well, I mean, I, I think... I think like most people that get into biological science, I've been fascinated by a lot of different creatures basically my entire life. So I've always had a fascination for animals and then venomous creatures are just sort of this extra special category of animals that have these unique, interesting traits that make them all the more dangerous, but also intriguing. It is interesting to me because venomousness is really fascinating, and I think its deadliness is also part of what makes it really interesting. Yeah, I I think we, as human beings, I mean, I think we're sort of fascinated by our own mortality, and we're very interested in things that have that sort of power of life and death over us, or, or the idea of having the power of life and death, or being able to decide when and how you die. And so, of course, any animal that can kill us, I think, automatically just becomes this, this very sort of mythical thing in our minds. It does seem uh, very counter, not counterintuitive, it does, there's something about a little creature that can kill you that's just like, immediately earns your respect, but also you want to know more about that thing. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, there's definitely a, a, a we see throughout history a fascination with venomous animals and, and certainly an intrigue and interest that it seems to exceed even some of the other, you know, notoriously deadly species like big cats or, or you know, wolves or these sort of big predators. I mean, with species like scorpions and snakes and spiders have just been woven into every ancient culture that you can find and and into myths and legends from, you know, the Bible to some of the oldest stories that have ever been recorded. And we do seem quite often to fear them in a very particular kind of special way, in a different way than we would fear an animal that's just, say, going to eat us like a big cat. Yeah, there's something about the way in which venoms kill, which is this often somewhat gruesome, frankly. It's it's not just you're dead. <laughs> it's you're dead by paralysis and you have, go through a period of being locked in your body without being able to express yourself or you're dying because you're literally hemorrhaging from every every single spot on your body that you can. I mean, these these deaths can be very, very visceral and very terrifying. And somehow creative. It's like the creative ways to die, really. <laughs> Well, yeah. And it's, I mean, to me, it's just really amazing that, that these animals, especially some of like, you think of something like a box jelly. I mean, it can kill a person in less than five minutes and it's a ball of jello. I mean, with a couple of 
thin tendrils attached. I mean, they're really not much to them, except that they can do these fantastically horrible things. So it's one thing to want to read about or learn about these kinds of creatures from a safe distance, like, for instance, me sitting on my sofa with your book. But what made you want to take the jump into actually going and working more closely with venomous creatures? I mean, to many risk-averse people, some of the stories you tell in your book are are really crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think I've always just been one of those people that like to get up close with the things that fascinate me. There's actually a, a great great story from when I was a little kid. I was five years old and I was applying to get into this private school in Hawaii and it required this interview. And so they sat me down and just asked me about my life and what I wanted. And And there's this transcript of sorts of this write-up that the interviewer gave. And I still have it. And apparently I went on and on about how I like to find dead geckos and open their mouths to look at their tongues. <laughs> This is me at five years old, mind you. This is not, this is not, you know, biologist Christy yet. This is little tiny kid Christy who was fascinated by dead gecko tongues. I think anybody who hears that story would agree that you are already biologist Christy at that point. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> so uh, care to tell us about any personal firsthand experiences you've had with Venom? <laughs> oh, I've had a lot of firsthand experiences with Venom. I think a lot of people have. Um, goodness. I, I think the most entertaining one is probably when I stabbed myself on a sea urchins very stupidly. <laughs> and that was, um, I was helping out with a kids group where we take these second graders and their parents to tide pools in Hawaii and we show them the various marine life that's in there and Usually it's this lovely day where, you know, a few grad students and I go and we talk to them about, you know, mutualistic relationships on the reef or, you know, how corals are alive and animals and things like that. And, of course, this one day was just one of those days where everything went wrong. And we suddenly had another tour group, like another group of kids there because there was some mismanaging of the beach and somehow there were just so many more people than there should have been. And then I had fewer volunteers, so I had less help than usual. And then one of my volunteers was my ex that I had broken up with like two days before. So I was really not looking forward to seeing him. But of course, I had too few volunteers, so I couldn't exactly tell him not to come. (laughs) And so it was just one of those places where I was in a complete bad mental space. And I was I was sort of feeling overwhelmed and flustered and struggled to begin with. And of course, it was the only day that we found Vana, and Vana is the particularly uh, venomous sea urchins in Hawaii. Usually, we find these nice little collector urchins, which are harmless, or these nice little rock-boring urchins called Ina, which are harmless. And I just, I just did not put two and two together looking at this this new urchin, and and realize what it was because I was just not in the right space. And then I reached in and I grabbed it. And it stung me, and I had several spines embedded in my hand, and it hurt a lot. <laughs> so so after you were stung, uh, you weren't motivated to, say, find a different kind of creature to study? Say, a, a cuddly fluffy one that doesn't have venomous spines? I think, you know, the cuddly fluffy ones get so much attention already. Everyone <laughs> loves talking about panda bears. I Who's going to stand there and stand up for the sea urchins, you know? <laughs> You're very forgiving. 
So what was the experience of being stung by a sea urchin like? Well, at first, I tried to be tough. (laughs) I tried to be all macho about it. And I was like, oh, I'll be fine. I can just pretend that nothing's happened and finish up what I'm doing. And, and, And that very quickly did not happen because there was a lot of pain. And it started to feel like my chest was getting tighter. And I was starting to have trouble breathing because I was having sort of a a panicked response to the pain. Uh, And so I ended up having to just run away from this group of people, basically run up the beach and, and try to find some tweezers to pull them the spines out of my hand. And that took way longer than it should have to find. And I have since updated the first aid kit in my car, but (laughs) it was, um, it was definitely worse pain than I expected far worse than I expected. Probably a helpful lesson in not underestimating the venomous creatures you might run into. Well, exactly, exactly. And and to the urchin's credit, I mean, that's exactly what it's going for. Mm. It's something like me that could hurt it, realizing that it is not the best thing to touch. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, Maybe let's back up a little bit and define what we're talking about. So when we say a creature is venomous, what do we actually mean? So venomous is one of the categories, essentially, of toxic. And toxic just means that it possesses toxins. And toxins are these various potential molecules that cause physiological harm in small doses. So we don't consider water a toxin, even though you could drink enough to kill you because it takes a lot to do it. So a toxin is something that it takes a very little amount to do a lot of damage. And how you define that damage can kind of vary, but the basic gist is that it has to have very potent activity. And then from toxin, you have two categories, basically. You have poisons and venoms. And poisons are those things that you ingest, inhale, or absorb. So anything that passively makes its way into you. Uh, venoms, on the other hand, are what is injected into you, at the lack of a better word. So anything that is actively delivered to your body through some kind of wound, and that might be a tentacle, it could be a spine, it could be a fang, but any sort of very, very painful delivery. So I guess uh, venoms would be something that's kind of intentional, whereas uh, poison would be something that's kind of like Bart Simpson just putting his arms in the air and saying, I'm just going to do this. And if you come in my way and get hit, it's not my fault. Yeah. So, I mean, there's certainly certain poisons that seem intentional, but there's also ones that don't. Like one of the ones that's classic is uh, ciguatoxin, which is a poison that can be sometimes in fish. And so people in tropical areas have to be somewhat careful about which fish they eat because they could eat a cyclotoxic fish. And that has a lot of bad things that go with it. But as far as we can tell from an evolutionary perspective, there's no point to cyclotoxin. It doesn't help the fish. It's not trying to poison its potential predators. And it wouldn't be a very good sort of deterrent for predation because you have to eat it and wait a little bit for it to do anything. Um, so it's a poison, but it doesn't seem to have a purpose. Whereas venoms very clearly have a purpose. They're either meant to capture prey or keep you from being captured as prey. Or in the case of platypuses, fight over females, but they're kind of a special case. I'm so excited that you brought up platypuses because I was going to anyway. So let's just jump right in and talk about the platypus. (laughs) I love them. They're just, I mean, they're first off, they're adorable animals, but they're these 
weird, bizarre creatures. I mean, when you look at them, they've got this like duck-like bill, they've got a beaver-like tail, they've got otter-like feet. I mean, they're just this random mishmash of the animal kingdom. And then to top it off in the bizarreness category, they have venom and only the males have venom and they use it to fight over females when they are during the mating season. So I vaguely knew that platypuses were uh, venomous before I read your book. Um, But I remember a time before I knew that. So I think there's probably a lot of people out there who don't realize that platypuses, I guess, male platypuses are venomous. Yeah. And it was actually, I mean, for centuries, there was a topic of scientific debate. I mean, there were people that just didn't believe that this was possible and that it was true. And uh, it took a lot of, of research to really show, no, really, they have a venom. It causes excruciating pain. Um, one of my favorite sort of stories about that is a medical literature piece where a guy described his injury from a platypus. And they, the case, the guy was a war veteran who had shrapnel wounds. So he knew pain very, very intimately. And he thought there was a platypus that was in distress. The platypus did not feel the same way and stung him on the hand. And the guy ended up getting tons and tons of morphine and all of these painkillers and they did nothing. The only thing that took off, even took the edge off the pain was a complete nerve block. So completely stopping all nervous transmission from his hand so that he couldn't feel the pain. Yeah, I mean, and to me, just the idea that this little furry mammal has this kind of excruciating venom is just amazingly terrifying. It's interesting, too, because there's not a lot of mammals that are venomous. We don't really think of mammals ever as being venomous. No, they're really not. I mean, venoms are found in just about every lineage of life. But mammals, there's only about a dozen or so depending on how you count species, that that have been shown to be truly venomous. Do we know why it's so uncommon in mammals? Um, there's lots of different theories or uh, hypotheses. I think one of the, the most common ones is just that we put our energy elsewhere. That most mammals, I mean, we, we put our energy into being endothermic and regulating our heat so that we can live in different types of environments more readily, for example. Or... We put our energy into reproduction and having these these babies that take so much time and so much effort um, as compared to, you know, shedding a bunch of eggs and being done with it. So I, I, I think it's it's really just sort of a evolutionary allocation of resources. So now the platypus actually keeps its venom in kind of an interesting spot that you might not expect. Right. So most people think of when they think of venomous, they think either of something like fangs, something they're going to bite with, or something like a stinger, right? So the platypus actually has these, like, I swear they look like dinosaur teeth or something, these tooth-like spurs on its ankles that it uses. And it so it kind of has to grab at its whatever it's envenomating with its legs. It does seem like a very awkward place to keep your venom. <laughs> I guess, but I guess if you're only using it really to con- compete with other males i mean that you see them fight each other and they kind of grab at each other with their legs i mean it makes sense in that sense you wouldn't need it somewhere more reachable so do we know what the effect and the of their venom is do we know how that venom works so we know some of how that works at least in people but we haven't really examined how it works in the 
context that it is meant, which is in other platypuses. We know that males, when kept in captivity together, can kill each other. So it certainly has potential lethality. Um, but mostly it seems to produce pain, and that's its main goal. So it wants you to cry, uncle, is really what it wants you to do. Yeah, yep. it wants you to give in and give up. So how exactly does the venom work on our body? Like, how, how does it make us feel this pain that we feel? So from what we know of platypus venom, it has uh, compounds in it that activate pain neurons very, 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 very potently. Um, and we're not exactly sure how. Um, there's only been a few studies on the venom of platypuses that have looked at sort of the mechanism, but it does seem to d- directly stimulate pain neurons. This is an interesting uh, part about venom that I didn't realize uh, while reading your until reading your book is that there's a lot about venom that we actually don't know. I mean, we know that in a lot of cases, it's very painful that different venoms can kill us, but a lot of the mechanisms are really unknown. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the the interesting thing about venoms is that you're talking about something that works on such a small scale. I mean, you're talking about molecular interactions. And so it's it's a scale that we can't easily observe and we can't easily see. And until recently, we couldn't see at all. So for us, it's it's this very different world to try to think in, in terms of, you know, binding of proteins and, you know, atoms moving, moving around rather than you know, large scale damage or or tissue damage and things. So I know that all venoms are not the same, but are there sort of like families or subclasses of venoms, like groupings that we can, we can kind of predict or that act in very specific ways that can be grouped together? So what we do see is a lot of convergence in venoms. So they tend to, to trend towards certain actions in the body. And most of them are very essential ones. So for example, one category, I guess you'd say, of venoms is neurotoxic venoms, and these attack neurons. And attacking neurons is very helpful because it can either stop your prey dead in its tracks by paralyzing it, or it can produce intense, unimaginable pain, which is a pretty good defense. And so we see a lot of neurotoxic venoms when you're talking about things like snakes, particularly things like cobras, um, and also in some of the defensive venoms and things. But if you're not going to attack a neuron, you could also attack something else essential like the blood. And and all mammals and, and a lot of things have, you know, our blood is very important to us. We have these very intricate systems for clotting and unclotting and, and all of that. And hematoxic venoms target the blood and the circulatory system and they cause things like drops in blood pressure, which mean you stop getting blood to your brain and therefore you pass out, which is a really nice, easy way for a snake to catch a meal. So you mentioned convergent evolution, and I was actually going to ask, are, are a lot of venomous creatures related to each other somewhere down the way, or is venom something that has converged multiple times? Um, both. I mean, we have definitely these large lineages of uh, venomous animals. So for example, we have the snakes, which is a big lineage, and it actually, um, there are also a couple of lizards that got lumped into that, like um, Komodo dragons, that are all this venomous lineage. But we also see it pop up over and over and over and over again. I mean, just about every branch of the tree of life seems to have a venomous member on it. So there's a lot of convergent evolution. So do we have any idea how venoms evolve? I mean, any any ideas or theories? Or I guess maybe there'd be multiple ways that venoms might evolve. 
I mean, the, the evidence that there is so many venomous animals just suggests that it is a very helpful adaptation to have. Um, and as for how they evolve, I mean, the main, one of the main driving sort of mechanisms seems to be mistakes in our DNA copying, particularly gene duplications. And what happens is basically when somebody's cells are splitting, they accidentally make an extra copy of some gene that has some normal, perfectly normal function in the body. And then because they have an extra copy, that, that gene then becomes free, that extra copy, to do whatever it wants. It could mutate and change, and it won't affect the, the regular function of the other copy of the gene. And so all of a sudden, you have the ability to turn something that is a normal compound in your body into a toxin. And, and these gene duplication events, we see them all the time in venomous lineages, particularly in the toxin families where they've turned something that's a normal, like so, a compound that keeps your blood from clotting, right? They take that and they have a duplication of that gene and then all of a sudden they make it something they can secrete and something they can inject. And then it's going to prevent somebody else's blood from clotting. Very, very sneaky. <laughs> so uh, biologically, you mentioned that venoms are very expensive. I mean, what is the cost-benefit calculation for venoms? Well, we know that venoms are expensive because it takes a lot of energy to replace them. So they've done studies, for example, if you milk a snake and you take away its venom and then you let it check how much energy it consumes in the process of rebuilding that venom stock, it, it's basically the equivalent of carrying around a baby which is a huge amount of energy when you think about it. Um, and so we know that they're expensive and, and that expense is really producing the venoms and also producing the pathways to keep yourself safe from the venoms. And for some species, we know how they do that. For some species, we don't really understand it very well. But a lot of species, I mean, if you're going to carry around a potent toxin, you want to make sure that you're not getting affected by it. Do creatures that are venomous, can they die from their own venoms if they get injured or if that sort of that that pathway gets punctured? I don't know. So on some cases, yes. I mean, we've seen animals where if they bite themselves accidentally or something like that, they can die from their own venoms. Others clearly have a very strong resistance to their own venoms or even venoms of closely related species. Um, animals like cobras, for example, are very resistant to snake venoms overall. So I guess in a lot of cases, because these venoms are expensive to produce, uh, my presumption would be that a lot of the animals and creatures that produce them are, are a little bit choosy or selective about when they decide to use those venoms. Yeah, it's uh, the concept of venom metering or, or sort of picking, being picky about when you put your uh, venom into something. It's it's something that hasn't been studied very well, and it's very difficult to study because you have to kind of set up different conditions and try to convince, figure out what the snake would find a as a good time to envenomate, right? Um, but we do see it with things like, for example, some of the scorpions that have really, really big pincers. When they encounter a small prey item, they tend to usually use just their pincers because they can, and their pincers don't, you know, waste venom. Meanwhile, if you put those same scorpions in with a larger prey item or a bigger animal that's going to fight more, then they tend to use more venom. And so we see these bits of evidence that these animals might actually choose when to use venom or not. 
I'm curious, in a situation with something like a cobra, if the cobra is milked for its venom regularly, does it display any evidence that it's having to spend a lot more energy maybe than normal to try and replace that venom all the time? I'm thinking things like, is it show, is it, does it appear to be more tired? Does it appear to be more sort of lethargic? So the studies that have been done have shown, for example, that it consumes more oxygen, which is one of the measures that we have for understanding the basal metabolism or the the basic functioning of a body, right, and how much energy a body is consuming. Um, But again, these studies are kind of difficult to do. It's hard to see and say, well, if I milk, you know, I need to fake milk a cobra and actually milk a cobra and then see whether or not one eats more food or, or, or does something differently. And, and they're not, not simple studies to conduct. That is a good point. How would you fake milk a cobra? That's a very good question. <laughs> and I mean, all of that could go into it, right? I mean, when you're grabbing and milking a cobra, you're literally grabbing the animal and then you're usually putting its fangs onto a cup of some kind or whatever and milking the venom from it. And all of that stress also would potentially cause energy. So you'd have to mimic the stress factor without mimicking the venom factor. Of course, the question everybody wants to know is what the most deadly venomous creature is, Um, which before we get to that, uh, leads to a really interesting conversation about, well, what do you mean by deadly? Yeah, so I, I often get asked, you know, what's the deadliest venomous animal or what's the most venomous animal? And it's it's really a loaded question and a really tough one to answer because there's a lot of ways we can think about deadliness. Or, or venomousness. Um, the first is the most obvious, which is drop for drop, which venom is the most toxic? And so we have uh, measures of potency. One, the most common one is called a LD50 or a lethal dose for 50% of a population. And that just means it's the dose per amount of body weight that kills half of a group of animals you inject it into. So if you had 10 mice and you injected a certain dose into it, if it killed five of them, that's the, the 50% dose or the LD50. Um, and so we can do those experiments. We can take venoms, we can inject them into mice and see what happens. But part of the problem with using that as a measure of deadliness is that we're not mice. And we already know, at least with certain toxins, just like we can cure cancer in mice every day, with certain toxins, mice are more resistant to it than we are. In certain toxins, they're less resistant to it than we are. So it's not exactly a perfect proxy for human deadliness. And it also doesn't tell you anything about the dose you're receiving. So one of the ones that uh, particularly stands out to me is they recently discovered venomous frogs. And this was the first frogs that they've shown to be venomous. And they talk about how potent their venom is. And it's basically as potent as some of these you know, deadly vipers. But the frog has so little venom in it that you're never going to get anywhere near a lethal dose from from a single frog. I mean, you'd have to be rolling in hundreds of them at once to even get close to potentially getting a lethal dose of this venom. And so I like to think of deadliness also in terms of actual risk to people. You know, if I get bitten by this animal, what are the odds I'm going to die? And that's what we call sort of mortality rates or fatality rates, right? And when you look at it that way, then some species that seem pretty innocuous suddenly become really dangerous, something like a cone snail. Uh, Conus geographus, the, the geographer's cone, has an 80, roughly 80% for fatality rate, which is amazing for a you know, several inch long mollusk. 
It's also something to take into account uh, uh, how frequently humans will run into these creatures. So we might not run into something like a cone snail very often, but depending on where you live, you might be much more inclined to run into something like a cobra. Right. And then that comes to sort of the third way you can measure deadliness, which is actual deaths. Um, and we, when we think about actual deaths, I mean, there are lots of animals that get pretty high ranking. Obviously, the venomous snakes, um, they kill upwards of 100,000, perhaps many more than that a year. The numbers are a little hard to get because they tend to occur in sort of rural areas where such, such numbers, such details are not taken. Uh, but yeah, so venomous snakes are certainly some of the deadliest animals on the planet then. But if you want to count by deaths, then there's a dark horse that I argue is the most deadly venomous animal. And that is the mosquito. So I don't know that a lot of people realize that mosquitoes actually have a venom. Yeah, so mosquitoes, at least I define, so we define venomous as something that injects a toxin, right? And so mosquitoes, when they bite you, they inject potent painkillers, anti-inflammatory agents, and all of these molecules that are meant to keep your immune system from letting you know that they're there and keep the blood flowing. And they do that so that they can have their meal and be on their way without hopefully getting swatted by their little host. So mosquitoes are venomous. And then unfortunately for us, that venomousness also makes them perfect vectors for disease. And so it's not actually the mosquito's venom that kills us. It's the fact that it is venomous that kills us. And the fact that it injects something, because they also inject alongside their venom things like malaria parasites, viruses like dengue and Zika. And combined, mosquito-borne diseases kill more than 750,000 people every year. Okay, so there are lots of different ways to judge how deadly a venom is, depending on the context and what it is you really want to know. But what about the most painful? <laughs> well, describing the most painful venom involves some very, very brave study, if you ask me. <laughs> and I personally have not undertaken the study of painful venoms, but there is a scientist who has gone above and beyond in this category. His name's Justin Schmidt, and he developed a pain index based on um, hymenopterin, which is bees and wasps and ants and their stings. And uh, he has felt the venom of dozens of different species just to see which one hurt the worst. I love the Schmidt pain index in part because it shows someone who is truly dedicated to their science in a, in a way that I think even most scientists would agree is above and beyond the call of duty. But also because his descriptions are a little bit whimsical. He has a very colorful and entertaining way of describing the uh, pain. I've got uh, a two here that are my favorites. One is the bald-faced hornet, which he describes as rich, hearty, slightly crunchy, similar to getting your hand mashed in a revolving door. And then, uh, of course, the bullet ant, which is pure, intense, brilliant pain, like walking over a flaming charcoal with a three-inch nail in your heel. They are just wonderful descriptions of, of pain because it is difficult to describe pain. It really is. I mean, and especially when you're experiencing it, it becomes very, very difficult to articulate. 
how you feel. And then to both compare pain to other pains you felt. And I, I've always felt like we remember pain badly. We just remember that it was intense, but that we lose a little bit of that and maybe even a lot of the intensity as we try and look back on it later once the pain is gone. Well, yeah. And I think there's, there's a bit of a reason for that, because if we really remembered pain as vividly as we felt it, it would overwhelm us. So I do want to talk uh, about antivenoms as well, because after we've been bitten or stung, uh, we of course need to know how to save ourselves. So uh, first of all, what are antivenoms? So antivenoms are essentially antibodies that bind toxins and help us deal with an envenomation. So usually the way we make antivenoms is we enlist the aid of some sort of animal, often something like a horse with a lot of blood, and we inject that animal with venom over and over and over again. And as we do this, these small doses of venom, the animal's immune system actually develops toxin-fighting molecules called antibodies. And then we can later take those antibodies by taking the serum from the animal, sort of like donating blood, and take that serum and take those antibodies and purify them and then use them to inject into a person's bloodstream when they've been bitten by the same venomous animal. So how do these antibodies work? They grab the toxins and sort of keep them from doing what they're trying to do? Yeah, so there's there's several different ways that antibodies work, but the main one is just basically it binds onto a toxin and it blocks that toxin's active site or the, the area that is necessary for it to do its nefarious purposes. And so these antibodies, it's how our bodies actually deal with all sorts of different uh, threats. So something like when you get a vaccine, what you're actually doing is, is preparing antibodies and preparing this memory of antibodies that will then, should you encounter that virus again, uh, come and attack the virus. So if you have been envenomated by the same thing a couple of times, do you become somewhat slightly immune to that venom? Well, I mean, the, the, the trouble with venoms as opposed to something like a virus is that you're talking about a high dose in a very toxic form versus something like a virus, which at first is a low dose of, of actual viral particles. So you might have a, an immunogenic response or an immune response to a venom, but the odds of it being high enough to actually give you resistance and fast enough to actually give you resistance are pretty low. So you mentioned the process behind uh, creating antivenoms, which I didn't realize at all before reading your book. I, I didn't realize that this was something that involves sort of two creatures. One, we need to get the venom from the actual creature who has the venom. And then we need another creature. Uh, quite often, uh, I think you mentioned a horse that we inject the venom into in order to create these antibodies that we want. Is there is this really the only way we have of creating antivenoms? Or is there uh, something that we might think of as being more sort of processed? So, I mean, there's a lot of new technologies looking into improving antivenoms. The, the interesting thing about antivenoms is up until recently, they'd basically been made the exact same way for a century, which is this sort of crude process. But now, of course, with our much better technology, we're learning how to create better antibodies. We're learning how to chop up antibodies in unique and interesting ways to try to make them more effective or um, pulling out the best antibodies instead of just this whole suite of antibodies to find the ones that are most useful. So uh, the process that it is right now, which is this very manual sort of tedious process, it, it also sounds kind of expensive. And my understanding is that the antivenoms don't have a really long shelf life either. Yeah. So because they're sort of biological molecules, I mean, they, most of the time they have to be kept cold. 
They have to be made frequently. And so antivenoms have certain drawbacks in that sense, um, particularly if you're talking about getting them to places that need them most, which tend to be rural and not have great medical facilities. So I know, for instance, if you are making an antivenom for like a cobra, uh, I've seen videos and I, I, I know sort of how people would go about milking a, a cobra for its venom. But how does somebody milk a snail or milk a jellyfish? I don't understand how we would get the venoms from those creatures without, you know, being envenomated by them. Very carefully. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, so it depends on the animal, but there are, there are ways. I mean, for example, with spiders, you can uh, electrically stimulate their venom glands to just get little tiny drops of venom at a time. And it, it's, it, it is a very arduous process. And it's another drawback to making antivenoms as sort of your primary way of solving bites and stings is that some animals don't produce good quality lots of venom. So I guess this is one of the main reasons why we don't just have stocks of antivenoms everywhere that we might possibly need them in large supplies. Yeah, I mean, that's part of it. And there's also a whole suite of, of pharmaceutical political dialogue that goes on. I mean, just like any sort of drug, there's there's all sorts of red tape and, and other things that have to happen to, to make it available. So the last creature and type of venom that I want to talk about is mind control wasps, because you have to talk about the mind control wasps. Oh, they're amazing. I, I really, I love, hymenopterans really are some of the most incredible venoms, even though they tend to be simpler in, in sort of composition and structure. They just can do amazing things with their venom. So what kind of venom does this wasp have and how does it use it? So there's a sweet, there's actually quite a lot of species that basically they're called parasitoids. And the way that they work is that as adults, they're perfectly normal wasps that do perfectly normal waspy things. But to become adult wasps, they have to feed on another creature. So they're sort of a parasite, hence parasitoid. And to convince that creature to let them feed on it, they use venom. And so the female wasps, which are the ones that are venomous, when it comes to ants and bees and wasps, only the females are venomous because their venom delivery system is actually modified from the egg laying system. Fun fact. And so what they do is, in this case, um, for example, the emerald cockroach wasp will take a cockroach, paralyze it briefly, and then inject venom directly into its brain to alter its behavior. See, this is fascinating. How does a venom alter behavior? That, that question I find intensely interesting. So the way that this venom works is it basically dampens neuron, neuron signaling, but it doesn't shut it off. And so it makes it so it's really hard to stimulate neurons in this particular area of the brain. And the wasp is very, very particular about which area of the brain it injects into. They've done studies where they've um, taken cockroaches and removed little portions of their brain. And if you take out those portions of the brain, the wasp just sits there for an excessive amount of time poking around trying to find them. How does the wasp know which part of the brain it's in? Because it can't see it, but I guess maybe it can feel it through the stinger? Yeah, they must have some sort of sens sensory ability with the stinger. I, I don't think it's fully understood exactly how they know. I mean, I guess there could be some behavioral behavioral cues. Once they found the right spot, maybe then the, the cockroach is more docile or something. And maybe. I, my guess is it's, it's a chemical signal that they they detect it somehow um 
But yeah, so they, they feel around, they find this perfect spot, they inject this venom, and this venom then works on the brain to sort of dampen signals. And that means that instead of being, you know, flighty, for example, and running at touch, uh, these cockroaches pretty much just do what they're told. And how does the wasp then tell the cockroach what it wants to do? So what they'll actually do is they they break off one of the antennae of the cockroach and they drink the blood. And, and we're not entirely sure why they do this. Um, it's possible that she that the wasp is actually testing whether or not the, the right amount of venom has gotten in there or it might just be getting a little nutritious benefit. But then she will lead the cockroach around by its broken antenna and bring it into a burrow where she will attach her egg to it and seal it up. And then presumably when the babies hatch, they have their first meal. Yes. So then when the, the baby hatches, it eats the cockroach alive until it's happy and satiated and the cockroach dies. So I have a potentially wacky question, and I invite you to speculate or completely quash my rampant speculation <laughs> as appropriate. I read about these kinds of creatures that have the ability to use a venom or some kind of substance to control the minds of another creature. And then I'm forced to wonder, like, is there a substance or could we create a substance that would allow us to do this intentionally to other creatures or us to potentially do this to other humans? You know, I, I don't think that's as wild a speculation as, I mean, we think about something like truth serum, right? And, and the idea that there might be chemical compounds that would put us in a place where we couldn't lie or make us think things. I mean, hallucinogenics certainly are able to make us see things and think things. So the idea that we could create something, I, I don't think it's actually that far-fetched. That makes me very paranoid. <laughs> I'm not inclined to paranoia. But when I think too hard about it, it makes me a little bit paranoid. At least it would be difficult, I'll say that, because of how complex our brains are and, and uh, bodies and behavior, it wouldn't be easy as it might be for a cockroach. I would presume that a com that that most of these types of mind controlling adaptations, whether they're venoms or uh, I believe there's some sort of bacteria that has something like this as well with mice. Uh, there's certainly parasites that that control the minds of their hosts as well. So I would presume that a lot of these act on, I'm going to use air quotes here, simpler brains, or is that not necessarily true? I guess I don't really know how similar my brain is to a mouse's brain. Um, I mean, there's it's simpler as part of it, but it's also depends on how much behavioral modification you're going for. Um, with the case of the mice, for example, what tends to be dampened is fear responses. And so we actually see there's one parasite, Toxoplasma, that there is some evidence that it also dampens fear responses in us. It just doesn't have as profound a behavioral effect because our behavior is so much more complex than a mouse is on a daily basis. And presumably a mouse has lots of predators and humans don't tend to. And humans don't tend to. And, and what the, the parasite's going for is it has to get into a cat as its final host. And so it wants the mouse to be a little bit too stupid and, and hang out in front of cat and get eaten. Um, whereas when that same parasite gets in us, if we have slightly dampened fear responses, we're not just going to get eaten by a cat. Christy, thank you so much. This has been great, and the book is wonderful. Well, thank you for having me. And if you want to learn more about Christy Wilcox or her book, Venomous, How Earth's Deadliest Creatures Mastered Biochemistry, we have links to both of those things on our website, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. 
Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. With me is Dr. Jim Olson, a physician scientist who cares for children with brain tumors and discovers and develops new cancer therapies. He is currently a full member of the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, a professor at the University of Washington, an attending physician at Seattle Children's Hospital, and founder of Presage Biosciences and Blaze Bioscience. He and his lab team discovered tumor paint, a targeted fluorescent molecule that binds to solid tumors to help guide surgeons during cancer resection. Welcome to Science for the People, Jim. Very happy to be here. Okay, so obviously the best place to start is what is tumor paint? Tumor paint is a molecule that gets injected intravenously into a patient prior to their surgery. It goes through the body, attaches to cancer cells, but very few normal cells, and gets internalized into the cancer cells, bringing with it a molecular flashlight, a fluorescent molecule, so that during the operation, when a surgeon shines a laser beam into the area where they're doing surgery, the cancer lights up and glows bright green, whereas the normal tissue around it does not light up the same way. So how does this work? What exactly is this binding to? Uh, it's embarrassing to say that after 12 years of working on this, uh, we don't know what the target is at this point. We thought at first that it bound to a chloride ion channel, and hence the targeting molecule was originally called uh, by others chlorotoxin. Uh, and then we learned that it doesn't bind to chloride ion channels, and it's not a toxin in mammalian cells. So it's a very poorly named molecule. Um, but the fact is, while we've been able to disprove three targets that other people suggested it was, uh, we are still not certain what the target is. So we know it makes something in the tumor cells fluoresce, but we don't know what that is. Uh, no, I'd say it differently, that it carries the fluorescent molecule with it, and it binds to something in tumor cells that we don't know what that target is. Okay, so does it only bind to tumor cells, or are there other types of tissues in human cells that it binds to? There are some normal tissues that it binds to, but for the areas that we care about for doing, for it being able to help surgeons do their resections, uh, there's a really nice contrast between the cancer and the normal tissue around it. Some examples of that are the brain, uh, where the brain tumors light up, uh, but the normal brain uh, is, is not lighting up in most cases. There are some exceptions. Uh, breast cancer, where the breast cancer lights up, but the normal breast around it does not light up, and, and things like that. If you look at the whole body, uh, you would find some signal in you know, certain um, membranes in the body, or there's some that's taken up by the liver, um, but those are not the places that we're doing clinical trials to see if we can distinguish cancer from normal tissue. So does it bind to all types of tumors, or just specific ones? We found that in preclinical studies, it bound to breast cancer, colon cancer, lung cancer, prostate cancer, brain cancer, sarcomas, almost everything that we tried. Uh, in our human clinical trials, uh, we're seeing uh, in, in brain tumors, uh, it's also binding to um, most of the types of tumors. There's one low-grade type that isn't lighting up at this point, and um, we think that that will help us understand better what the target actually is. 
I was going to say, is there something related between the types of tumors that it seems to be working really well with versus the ones that it's not working so well with or not working at all with? We're just not following that long to be able to answer that question. I think that as we do more and more clinical trials and we identify more types of cancer that it doesn't bind to, that that will be an easier question to answer. Um, but as I said, in our preclinical studies, almost every type of cancer that we looked at uh, lit up with tumor paint. So it was really hard to be able to put them into two groups, those that lit up and those that didn't. So now my understanding is that scorpion venom played a part in the story of how this came to be. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, the original molecule that we began with, uh, which was called chlorotoxin, came from the Israeli death stalker scorpion. And while I've never touched one of those uh, critters, uh, it turns out that you know, several decades ago, scientists milked the scorpions, put a, an electrode, touched an electrode to their tail, and the venom came out, and they separated that out into individual molecule types. And they were interested in seeing whether or not this particular molecule uh, blocked chloride ion channels. And at first, there was some data that it did, but the group that published that subsequently came out and said that they really didn't think that it did. So what made you even think to look at scorpion venoms or venoms in general? Uh, it was less about venoms and more about we were motivated by a single patient in 2004 who was a 16-year-old girl that had a brain tumor. And despite a world-class neurosurgeon working on her and working for many hours, uh, he left behind a you know, rather large piece of cancer because he thought using all the tools available that it was a normal brain uh, rather than tumor and he didn't want to harm her. And so that day, uh, he, Dr. Ellen Bogan, and I decided that we were going to find a way to make the cancer light up. And so a student in the neurosurgery department, Patrick Kabikian, came into my lab. And each day, he would go to the literature, to computer databases, and try to find everything that he could find that was different about brain cancer compared to normal brain. And for six weeks, he and I met almost every day, and he would give me his ideas. And one way or another, I would find that this probably wouldn't work for one reason or another. And so we kind of shot him down one after the other, you know, hundreds of these ideas. And then after about six weeks of this, he said, uh, you know, Jim, we're really scraping the bottom of the barrel here. But there is this paper published that shows that this molecule chlorotoxin binds to brain cancer cells. They think it blocks chloride ion channels. I don't know whether it would bind to normal tissue or not. And I said, well, if it binds to those chloride ion channels, those particular ion channels are not present in the normal brain. So it might actually um, distinguish the cancer from the normal brain. And furthermore, because it comes from a scorpion, maybe it'll actually cross into the blood-brain barrier because uh, scorpions paralyze their prey and they need to have access to, to nerve cells. So we said, let's give it a try. Let's grow a human glioblastoma type brain tumor on the back of a mouse and we will link the chlorotoxin to a fluorescent dye injected in the tail vein of the mouse and just see if the cancer lights up. And if the cancer does light up, does everything else light up or is there a difference between the cancer and the normal tissue around it? And so we grew the glioma on the mouse, injected the tumor paint, uh, which is what we'd come to call it, into the tail vein of the mouse. And just like an hour or two later, uh, we took a look under the laser and the cancer was glowing bright green and the rest of the mouse was not glowing. So we were pretty excited. We were uh, two grown men in white lab coats dancing in the halls of Fred Hutch. Oh, I wish you captured that on video. <laughs> I don't think you want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I beg to disagree. Um, that's really interesting to think about, actually, because I think a lot of us forget about the blood-brain barrier, which makes this process a lot more difficult, especially for brain tumors. That's for sure. Most cancer drugs don't cross the blood-brain barrier, which our bodies have to protect our brain from chemicals in the environment. 
And because of that, I take care of kids with brain cancer, and most of these drugs that work really well for other types of cancer can't even get into the brain. Uh, and so we have a much worse outcome for, for kids and adults with brain tumors than most other types of cancer. And a lot of that I attribute to the blood-brain barrier, and really a lot more of it I attribute to the fact that the brain tumor is adjacent to normal brain, and you don't want to surgically remove normal brain when you're trying to get the brain tumor out. So there's those two problems together really create a very high barrier for success in, in brain tumor therapy. So without something like tumor paint, I mean, how do surgeons tell what is tumor and what is healthy tissue, especially somewhere like the brain? Yeah, it, it, in some cases, it's fairly easy. Some tumors are encapsulated or they have a grossly different appearance than the normal brain. In other cases, because brain tumors are really just cells from the normal brain that have that are growing too fast, they look a lot like the normal brain, and sometimes they look just exactly alike, and it's really hard to tell. So surgeons use their vision, they use their fingers and thumbs uh, to feel the consistency of it. In some cases, they put electrodes in to see if they get recordings that look like brain recordings. But as you can imagine, all of these things are very imprecise. And it's one of the things I'm learning as I go around the country talking about this is that people don't realize how difficult it is for surgeons to tell the difference between cancer and normal tissue in some cases. I mentioned the brain, but the same is really true in breast cancer. About 30% of women who have breast cancer surgery get a call two or three weeks later that says we were too close to the margin or there was active cancer at the margin. You're going to have to come back and have a repeat surgery or you're going to need more intensive therapy because we didn't get all the cells. So what kinds of side effects or injuries can result from tumor removal surgery? In particular, I'm thinking with brain surgery, because if it's really hard to tell what's tumor and what's brain, I'm assuming that there's a real risk of removing healthy brain tissue. That's absolutely true. Um, having sat through brain tumor board for a couple decades now, uh, you'd be surprised how much normal brain we see that comes out of the operation. Uh, and it's simply because the surgeons do have difficulty telling the difference. And their job is to try to get the tumor as safely as possible. So it's it's challenging. So how frequently does the surgical process of removing a brain tumor leave the patient with an injury from the removal process? Oh, it depends on the type of surgery and the location of the tumor. There are some places where uh, it's surgically not even approachable, uh, tumors that are in the brain stem. Uh, some of the tumors that are in you know, the thalamus uh, or the hypothalamus or the optic nerve pathway, surgeons won't even try to go after because we know that we will badly damage that patient. So those are kind of the unresectable tumors. And then among the others, uh, it really depends a lot on the, on the location of it. Uh, so for kids, it turns out that about 80% of kids that have brain tumors, it's in the back part of the brain, in the area around the cerebellum or the brainstem. And the reverse is true for adults. It's mostly in the front of the brain. And the front of the brain is a little bit more forgiving, uh, although sometimes if it's in the frontal lobe, you can have personality changes. Uh, sometimes if it's in the cerebellum, you can have balance problems or speech problems. Um, a lot of our kids are pretty beat up from the tumor itself or the surgery associated with it. What a tough choice to think about uh, what is the what risk is better, the risk of the tumor or the damage the tumor does or the damage of possibly having to go in and remove it. That's heartbreaking. Exactly. And that's the whole reason that we thought that it was important to give the surgeons a tool. And the tool is simply to help them see those differences between the cancer and the normal brain so that they can be more precise in getting out the maximum amount of tumor and the minimum amount of normal brain. Uh, that's, that's the whole goal of this project. 
So this has actually been used in real human surgeries, correct? We have now treated uh, over 70 patients with tumor paint. So how big a difference is tumor paint making in the removal process for the people that we've tried it on so far? The current studies are all safety studies. They're all phase one clinical trials. And because it hasn't been proven through clinical trials to be effective at distinguishing cancer from normal brain tissue, when we asked to do those clinical trials, the FDA said, you may look to see if there's tumor lighting up. You may take pictures of it. You may determine in the pathology suite whether the parts that are lighting up look like cancer and the parts that are not lighting up uh, do not look like cancer. But you may not make decisions uh, for patients based on this because it hasn't been proven. And so we can't really answer that question uh, because it's a safety study. Uh, that said, um, we are seeing that uh, in most of the time, over 80% of the time, when it's lighting up, it's cancer. When it's not lighting up, it's not cancer. I don't want to draw any conclusions because we need to let the Food and Drug Administration do their job of determining, first of all, whether it's safe, and second of all, whether it works. Okay, so I just want to make sure that I understand where are the trials at now. So at this point, we're injecting it into human patients and having a look to see what lights up, taking photographs, recording what parts of the brain is lighting up, but we're not actually using that light to guide us during actual surgery. Is that correct? That's correct, particularly for the adult trials. Uh, in the pediatric trials, uh, there's a twist to that story, which is that you're not allowed to enroll a child on a clinical trial unless there might be some potential benefit for that patient. And so for the pediatric trials, the FDA allows us at the end of surgery, if the surgeons see some glowing green area, uh, they are allowed to remove that if in their surgical judgment, they believe that it's cancer and that they just missed it with their eyes. And in some of those cases, the surgeons have seen some residual green at the end of the surgery, have removed it, and it did prove to be cancer. Uh, and and um, that's you know, those are the kinds of stories that help us see the light for the future, uh, that this could uh, potentially be very helpful for patients and for surgeons. So how long does this part of the trial process go for? We've completed two clinical trials, a trial in skin cancer patients that we did in Australia, and a trial in adult brain tumor patients that was done at Cedars-Sinai in LA. Uh, we are currently doing a pediatric brain tumor trial where we've completed the phase where we increase the dose uh, in every three patients. So we've gone through multiple different dose levels. And we're also doing a trial in adult patients with breast cancer here in Seattle. So we're beginning to wrap up the phase one safety studies. And uh, the company that's developing all of this, Blaze Bioscience, is currently in conversations with the Food and Drug Administration to get their guidance on what kind of trials and what kind of data they would like to see in order to approve this for use by surgeons. It's a really fascinating uh, discovery, and uh, it's. I really hope that it goes well, and we can maybe one day use this to help us uh, have better outcomes for cancer patients. Thank you very much, Jim. Thank you so much for the time for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It was it was great to talk to you. And if you want to learn more about Jim Olson or the tumor paint, we have links to get you started on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivelon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten. Coordination and additional behind-the-scenes support comes from the Enthusiastic Skeptic Network team. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. 
Science for the People is listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. In return, we regularly post special patron-only extra content and after-show casual conversations with guests. This show is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders and me, Desiree Shell.